couple of weeks ago, or a little longer than that, about four weeks ago, we began a series on Luke chapter 7, a four-part series. We've looked at two of those. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10, we focused on in our first study. We talked about a man who made Jesus marvel. Here was the centurion who had a servant that needed to be healed, and he sent someone to go to Jesus. And the faith that he had made Jesus marvel. And we learned a number of practical lessons from that. In the second study, we took verses 11 to 17, and we talked about the raising of the son of the widow of Nain, and this was the reaction of the people. They said, God has visited his people. Several things we learned from that context. The third section that we study this morning is starting in Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 18. And going through verse 35, this is a larger section of the text. This is a long chapter, and then next week we'll finish the chapter talking about another aspect of the life of Christ and how he touched people and the reaction that they had to his teaching. But in this section, we have Jesus talking about John, is what this section is all about. Let's read verses 18 to 35. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And when the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And at that very hour he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and many blind he gave sight. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things that you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitude concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled live in luxury, and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you more than a prophet. This is he of whom it was written, Behold, I send a messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And the Lord said, to what shall I like in the men of this generation and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned for you, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all her children. Well, that is a lengthy section, but it's an interesting section of Jesus talking about John. 
There is a parallel account to this in Matthew chapter 11, 1 to 19. You might want to put a finger or marker if you have several markers in your Bible. We are going to go there a little bit later and notice some parallels and some phrases that are different there. But we're not going to go there just at this juncture. But Luke records this and Matthew records this. The parallel account is in Matthew chapter 11. Let's go back to Luke 7. If you've already left that, let's go back and let's get the gist of what Luke 7 just said in this section. Let's get an outline of verses 18 to 35. What we have are two things that happen in this context. Number one, there is the confirmation to John. Now, why is it that John is sending his disciples? Well, he's sending it for their benefit, but Mark's or Matthew's account says John is in prison at the time. So John is in prison, and his disciples have come to him while he's in prison and tell him all the things that Jesus is doing. And he calls his disciples to him and he sends two of them to Jesus and said, you go to Jesus and ask him, are you the coming one or do we look for another? He is not sending them because he is uncertain. John 1 tells us he had already seen Jesus and declared this is the Son of God. He knows this is the Son of God. He knows he's the coming one. This is for their benefit that he sends them. So you go to Jesus and you ask him, are you the coming one or do we look for another? And that's exactly what they do. So they go and ask, are you the coming one? And instead of saying yes or no, he turns and starts working miracles. And then he turns back to them and said, you go tell John the things you heard and that you saw. And you tell him about how the blind are seeing and the lame are walking and the lepers are healed. You tell him about all the miracles that have been done. And then as they leave, we begin now at verse 24. So here was confirmation sent back to John. Beginning at verse 24, he focuses on those that are left there, that is the multitude. And he starts talking about John. He said, what were you expecting when you went out and heard John? What did you go out to see? Did you think you'd see a reed shaken in the wind? That's something uncertain? Because that's not what John was. John was something very certain. He had a certain message. Well, what is it that you were going out to see? Somebody dressed like a king? Well, that's not what you saw in John. What you saw in John was somebody not dressed like a king. Those kind of people lives in the king's courts. So what were you going out to see? Were you thinking maybe that you would see a prophet? Well, indeed, he was a prophet. In fact, he's, he's more than a prophet. He was the one that would be the forerunner of Christ. And he's the fulfillment of Isaiah 40. So what we've just covered is this section, who he is. Let me tell you who he is. He's a prophet is who he is. In fact, there's not a greater prophet around than John the Baptist. Then he turns in verses 29 to 35 and focuses on the effect of his work. His work is very effective. In fact, people were baptized because of the work of John. And even though John was not well accepted by some... Notice at verse 35, the end of this whole section, that wisdom is justified by our children. In other words, the work of John created great results. We'll see more about that in Matthew chapter 11 in the parallel account in a moment. So let's talk now about Jesus talks about John. There was confirmation sent to John, and then there is commendation of John in this context. And let's list some lessons that we learned from this story. Let's start with it. Here's something that I learned from this context. God supplies evidence for our conclusions. And sometimes that's all he does on a particular subject. God supplies evidence for our conclusions. 
And so let's look at verses 21 and 22. The messengers of John, the disciples of John were sent to Jesus. Are you the coming one? That's the question. Or do we look for another? Perhaps they were expecting him to say, yes, I am the coming one. Or no, you look for another. But he didn't say either one. Let's go back to verse 21 and 22. Are you the coming one or do we look for another? And at that very hour, verse 21, he cured many people of their infirmities and afflictions and evil spirits. And those who were blind were given sight. Then Jesus said, you go tell John this. But notice the five things that he mentions here, actually six. He said, you go tell him <coughs> that the blind see, number one, the lame walk, number two, the leopards are cleansed, number three, the deaf hear, number four, and the dead are raised, number five, and the poor, number six, have the gospel preached to them. You go tell all that you heard and you saw. You saw a lot of miracles here. You go tell all of that, and you tell John about all that. So here's what I want you to see. Jesus did not just say yes, but he gave evidence from which to draw the conclusion. Now notice what the disciples of John could have done. They could have said, John, we went and asked him, but he refused to answer. And all he just ignored us and started working miracles and we saw people that were blind and healed. But he never gave us any, any clue of whether he's the coming one. Oh, yes, he did. Instead of saying, yes, I'm the coming one, he gave them evidence from which to draw that conclusion. Here is a miracle. The blind are seeing. The lame are walking. The dead are raised. What do you think? Am I the coming one or do you look for another? Let me notice another occasion where Jesus did that. We'll come back to Luke 7. You might put a marker or a finger there. Let's go to Matthew chapter 19. <clears throat> there was another occasion when Jesus was asked a question and he didn't say yes or no. And it was a yes or no question. Let's notice this at verse 3. Matthew 19 and in verse 3. The question was, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife just for any reason? That's a simple question. It's either yes or no. Can you divorce just for any reason? Well, the answer would be no in light of other scriptures, but Jesus didn't say no. He didn't say yes. What did he do? Notice what he says beginning at verse 4. He said, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh? Wherefore they are no longer two but one flesh, and therefore what God has joined together let not man separate. You see, the Pharisees could have said, You know what? He just ignored our question. He refused to answer our question. No, he did more than that. He gave the reason for his answer. If God made one man for one woman for life, verse, five, verse 4, made them male and female, the answer is no. Now I know the reason for the answer. And if this is true, that man should leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, now I know the answer to the question and why the answer is no. And if two are to become one flesh, now I know why the answer is no. And when God has told us that what he has joined together, let not man separate, I know the reason the answer is no. Now here's something I want us to consider. Here's what that kind of answer accomplishes in both texts. What it accomplishes is it encourages thought, it encourages reflection, it encourages study and application. In other words, just to give an answer, oh yes, I'm the coming one, doesn't require much thought. But to work a miracle in their presence causes them to think, you know what? If he can raise the dead, and he can make the lame walk and the blind to see, you know what, I believe we know the answer now to the question, is he the coming one? 
The same thing in Matthew chapter 19. If God made one man for one woman for life, and they are one flesh, I believe now I'm understanding the answer to the question and understand why that answer is such. It causes study and reflection and thought and application. The Bible does not just consist of memorizing a list of do's and don'ts. In other words, the Bible doesn't give us a list and say, here's the list of things you can't do, here's the things you can do, here are the things that are right, here are the things that are wrong, and you memorize the list and you've got it. We must study and think and reflect and make some application thereof. And that's what Jesus did in this context. Here's something else that's accomplished with that. It's a test of honesty and faith. You see, these disciples of John could have said, I don't think he's the coming one. Well, what makes you think that? Well, he didn't answer. He just refused to answer our question. See, it's a test of their honesty. Are you going to look at this miracle and draw the right conclusion? Are you going to look at this miracle and conclude that indeed he is the coming one? Are you going to look at the fact God made one man for one woman for life and conclude that marriage is permanent? See, it's a test of honesty and it's a test of faith. Here's something else. It helps us to see why, not just the fact. In other words, let's go back to Matthew 19. I know that divorce for any cause is wrong, but now I know the why of that and not just the fact of it. And had Jesus said, I am the coming one, now I know why he claims that. Look at the power that he has. It encourages us to study. It helps us to see why. I want to suggest to you there are a number of questions where God merely gives us answers or gives us evidence, and we're to draw the conclusion from that. Sometimes we're disappointed. What do I mean by that? Let's take the issue of dancing. The Bible doesn't say, thou shalt not dance. Someone will say, well, well, show me in the Bible where dancing is wrong. And I can't find a passage that says, thou shalt not dance, or dancing is a sin. I can't find those words. But what I can find are Bible principles that are violated. So now I know more than the fact that dancing is wrong. I know why it's wrong. I know the principles that are violated by that. The same thing is true, for example, with gambling. We can't find a passage that says, Thou shalt not gamble. Gambling is a sin. Thou shalt not wager. But we find Bible principles that are violated by that. So now I know more than just the fact it's wrong. I know why it's wrong. I see the principle violated by that. Here's another principle. Instrumental music. We we can't find a passage that says instrumental music is sinful. You shall not use instrumental music in worship. But what I do find is principles of Bible authority. What God has authorized, examples of what they did, and from that I draw the right conclusion. The same thing is true on the issue of the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. There is not a passage that says, you take the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. But we draw that conclusion from Acts 20 and verse 7. Just like the Jews did concerning the Sabbath in Exodus chapter 20. Here's something else we learned from this context. Look at verse 23 with me. I learned that men can stumble over the truth. In other words, the truth can be laid right in front of them as clearly as it could ever be made in front of them, and they fall and stumble right over the front of that. How so? Let's look at verse 23. When Jesus said, here's what you go tell John. You go back and you tell John the things you saw, and he lists a number of things, the number of miracles. Let's get those again at verse, verse 22. How the, the, the blind see and the lame walk and the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear and the dead are raised. What an impressive list of miracles. 
You go tell John that, and then he adds this. Notice he adds it, verse 23, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Now, the footnote in your New King James Version will say, I cause to stumble for the word offend. In other words, the very thing that I'm doing, the very evidence I'm presenting to you, could be an occasion for someone to stumble, is what it could be. In other words, some could stumble over the evidence rather than accept it. That's what he's saying to these disciples. He's warning them, don't just look at this, this evidence and ignore it. If you do that, you're going to stumble right over it. Here the evidence is placed right in front of you and you fall right over that. You stumble over it. So don't stumble over the evidence. Step back and take a look at that evidence and analyze that evidence and you draw the conclusion, am I the coming one or do you look for another? But later in the context, though that's not the really emphasis of verse 23, they stumbled over John because he was not what they expected. They go out and hear John, and he's dressed in camel hair. They were expecting perhaps one dressed like a king. <laughs> That's not what I was expecting. They go out to look for John, and perhaps they thought he would be a reed shaken in the wind. And he has a firm, certain message commanding repentance. That's not what they were expecting out of John. And so they stumble over John, and he mentions that later in the context. I want to suggest this idea of stumbling is more than not getting the evidence, but it's an occasion of falling. We're going to establish that from another passage in a moment. But get the picture now. That if this evidence is thrown out in front of these disciples of John, it's more if they stumble over that or it's an occasion of offense, it's more than they just don't get the evidence. I just don't understand what, what the point is. But they fall over that. It's an occasion for falling. Now let's establish the fact that men stumbled over Jesus. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Interesting picture given in 1 Peter chapter 2. Men stumbled <clears throat> over the Lord himself. And that's the warning back in Luke chapter 7. Let's back up to verse 6. Jesus, or, or Peter talks about Jesus, that I, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone elect precious, and those who believe on him by no means will be put to shame. Therefore, those who do not believe, he is precious. To you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, now notice this at verse 7, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now hold your finger there, we'll come back. Here's the picture of building and building with rocks or building with stones. And a good mason will take a stone, and this is a good stone, so he puts it in. And here is a stone that he feels is inferior. He rejects it and throws it aside. It's, it's inferior. It's not worthy to be in this building. Here's another stone that's good. Here's another stone, though, that's inferior. I'll cost, cast it aside. It's inferior. It's unworthy to be in this building. Now, notice the stone which the builders rejected, that is, the Jews rejected. God took that stone and made it the chief or the main stone. Now then, verse 8, and a stone of a stumbling and a rock of offense, a quotation from Isaiah. In other words, when the builders rejected that stone, it was an occasion for them to fall over and trip over that stone. Men stumbled over Jesus. So not only did they not accept him, it was an occasion for their stumbling. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The gospel <clears throat> was not well received among some Jews, not well received among some Gentiles. So in 1 Corinthians 1 and 23, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews... It's a stumbling block. And to the Greeks' foolishness, they both rejected it. 
But for the Jews, it was a stumbling block. They fell over the evidence. Not only was it an occasion to not get it, it was an occasion of their falling. That's the point I want you to see. Now, I want to suggest that men stumble today. Why do men stumble over the truth? Sometimes because of their ignorance. They've been ignorant of God's righteousness, going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves. In other words, what's the point is that they ignore God's plan. Here's what might happen. It may be that we have surface knowledge, but we don't know how to dig into the depths and apply the, the depths of the Word of God. That might be to one who is a non-Christian. It might apply to the Christian as well, who has some surface knowledge, but they don't know how to deep d dive into the depths of the Scriptures and make application thereof. And so they stumble over the truth because of their ignorance. Sometimes we stumble over the truth because it doesn't fit our own ideas. Let's go back to verse 25 of our context. In verse 25, he said, what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? In other words, if you went out and heard about the forerunner of Christ and you heard about a prophet, you went out to see him, you probably were thinking that he would be dressed like a king, dressed in soft garments. He said, that's not the way John was. He didn't fit what you thought, did he? It wasn't your, didn't, didn't fit your idea. And so you rejected him, and you didn't accept John. When Christ came, you didn't accept him either. So look at John 12 and verse 34. Here was an occasion where there was a misunderstanding of some passages caused some people to reject the very statement of Jesus. Jesus had talked about the Son of Man being lifted up. And they said, at verse 34, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. Well, that wasn't true. Well, it's true they may have heard that. But the law hadn't said that. It's perhaps a misapplication of Psalm 89 or Isaiah 9 or Daniel 7. They made a misapplication of that, and some had concluded the Messiah was going to live forever and never die. So you can't be the Messiah if you're going to die. When the Messiah comes, he's not ever going to die. So what we've been told, and you talk about dying, so therefore their conclusion was, at verse 34, you can't be the Messiah. In other words, you don't fit our idea, so we're willing to reject you. Now that might happen to a number of things. That might happen on the plan of salvation. Someone says, you know, that doesn't seem to fit my thinking, that uh, this is what you have to do to be saved, that you have to be baptized. That doesn't make sense to me. And what does 2 Kings 5 have to do with that? Remember, Naaman was, was told to go dip seven times, and he said he rejected it at first, saying, I thought he would come out and, and perhaps uh, wave his hands and, and that he'd call upon his God. I thought he'd do something different than this. See, that didn't fit my idea. Sometimes the work of the church doesn't fit our idea. Some have the idea, you know, it looks like the church ought to be a, a good community service and, and a social uh, benefit and they ought to help the the poor and the needy of society and it ought to have a mission to take care of the needs of society that makes sense to me someone may say or it may be how to discipline the sinner that I think the way we can do that is draw closer to them spend more time with them show them more favor and that's going to bring them back to the Lord rather than than doing it the way it's taught in first Corinthians 5 or maybe who can remarry? If it doesn't make sense that this person could never remarry because of what their mate did, that doesn't make sense to me. And that doesn't fit our thinking. Men stumble over the truth. Here's a third thing. Look at verse 28. I'll learn a lesson from this context about the greatness of the least in the kingdom. The greatness of those who are the least 
in the kingdom. In fact, let's start back at verse 26. Let's establish that John was great. No doubt about it. John indeed was great. Look at verse 26. He said, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Well, indeed he was a prophet, but he was more than a prophet. What do you mean he was more than a prophet? Well, this is he of whom it was written, and here's a quotation from Isaiah 40, that I will send my messenger before you and he'll prepare your place before you. So what am I learning? Well, he was foretold in the prophets. That tells me he was great. He was a prophet himself, but he was more than just a prophet. He was the forerunner of Christ. And so indeed he was great. In fact, the text says there is no one greater. Now notice a little distinction in Matthew 11. You might turn to Matthew chapter 11 and hold a finger at Luke chapter 7. Verse 28 says that there is not a greater prophet than John. All right? Luke's account says of all the prophets, there's not a greater prophet than John. But Matthew 11 in verse 11 said, there is no one born among women that's greater than John. Doesn't mention the fact of the prophets. So which is it? Well, there's no greater prophet than John. In fact, there's not anyone that's greater than John himself. So John was a great man. That's what we're trying to establish. John was indeed great. Of all the prophets, none was any greater than John. But those that are in the kingdom are greater. Look at verse 28 again. I say to you, those born among women, there's not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. That's going to include me and you. No matter what you think of yourself, you're at least part of the least of the kingdom. Aren't you? How are we, those in the kingdom, greater? Because we're in the kingdom and John never was. John knew about the kingdom. John pointed to the kingdom. God, John preached about the kingdom. He knew the king. But John was never in the kingdom and if you're the least in the kingdom, at least you're in the kingdom, and John never was. We have access to greater blessings than John had. John was under the old covenant. Hebrews 8 and in verse 6. This tells us that those in the kingdom are viewed as important by the Lord. The Lord said that John was a great man. In fact, there's not a greater prophet than John. <clears throat> you list all the prophets, and I put John at the top. No one's any greater than John. But if you're in the kingdom, you're greater than John the Baptist. That means you're viewed as important by the Lord. You're as important as John the Baptist in the eyes of the Lord. And what a privilege and an honor to be considered great as John the Baptist. Here's something else. <clears throat> Look at verse 29 and 30. 29 and 30. The failure to obey is a rejection of God. A failure to obey is a rejection of God. Now the comment is made in the context as he's talking about the effect of John's work. What, how effective was John's work? Now, he apparently wasn't what you were looking for. He, Jesus tells the multitude. But was his work effective? Well, let's look at verse 29. Verse 29, And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God saying, uh, justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John. Here's what I want you to see. Some accepted and some rejected John. And what about those that accepted? Well, the publicans, that is the tax collectors, the lowest in the eyes of the Jews, accepted him. Verse 29. Even the tax collectors, 
they justified God by being baptized of John. In other words, they embraced John, they accepted John, and they did exactly what John had commanded. Look at verse 30. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the counsel of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Pharisees were the ones that were arrogant. And they rejected him. Now I want you to notice that rejecting John is the same thing as rejecting God. Let's go back to verse 30. The Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. What am I learning from that? That when they rejected John, they weren't just rejecting John, they were rejecting God himself. Jesus said, the one who rejects me and receives not my word, you reject the message of God, you're, you're, you're rejecting God. The one that's not with God is against God, Luke chapter 10 and in verse 16. Now I want to suggest ways in which men may reject the counsel of God. It may be by not being baptized. That's exactly what took place here. When John was preaching baptism for the remission of sins and they refused that, they were rejecting the counsel of God. So here's someone today who says, you know what, I don't think I'm going to be baptized. I don't think I need to be baptized. They're rejecting the counsel of God. Or maybe they're not worshiping regularly. And yet when God has commanded that, that means that I am rejecting the counsel of God. I'm not just rejecting the elder's interpretation of the passage. I'm rejecting the counsel of God. Or maybe not forgiving someone like I should, Luke chapter 17. I could talked about that in a sermon last week. Maybe not practicing self-control. Or maybe it's not being humble. Or maybe it's not and you continue to put whatever you want to put on the list. I'm rejecting the counsel of God by not being obedient unto God. Here's something else I learned. Let's look at verses 31 to 34. And that is that some men can't be pleased. Verses 31 to 34, some men can't be pleased. Neither John nor Jesus pleased the Jews. Look at verse 32. Jesus said at verse 31, To what shall I liken this man of this generation and what, what are they like? He poses a question that he's going to answer. You know, what, what, how could, what could I compare this generation to? What could I compare these Jews to? And he said, here's what I'm going to tell you. Look at verse 32. They're like children playing in the market, setting in the marketplace, and calling to one another, saying, we played the flute for you and you wouldn't dance, and we mourned for you and you would not weep. What's that all about? Apparently this alludes to a game that children would play. And maybe there's two groups of children, not knowing, no one knows exactly how it may be played, but it seems to be some kind of game where there'd be two groups of children, and so one would issue a call and see how the other is, the group is going to respond. Play the flute for you and see if you want to dance. And they respond by dancing, or they don't respond by not dancing. Well, they don't want to dance seemingly, so let's mourn and see if they want to cry, and they don't want to cry. In other words, we can't figure out what you want to do. We, don't, we can't figure out which direction you're wanting to go. You don't seem to want to do anything. They can't be pleased. That's the point. And so he says, you're like children playing that you can't be pleased. Or like maybe putting it in a modern setting, a child complains because they can't go outside. And then you let them go outside, but they want to come back in. They come back in, they want to go back outside. You don't seem to be pleased. And John says, or Jesus said, that's the way these people are. Now notice the application that he gives. Verse 33 he said, John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. What does that mean? I'm not talking about becoming a drunkard or consuming alcohol, but he's talking about his association with the sinners. In other words, he didn't go and sit with the sinners talking and conversing directly with them like Jesus did. 
He said, that's the way John was. He did not come eating and drinking, and your reaction was, he must have a demon, because he didn't associate with everybody else. All right, then they must like people associating with the sinner. So when Jesus came, he came eating and drinking, and their reaction was, well, he's a wine-bibber and a glutton. And he's a sinner just like all the rest of them. Now, which way is it? Is it when you, when you don't associate your, your right or when you do so, associate his right? You can't make up your mind. You can't be pleased. So we had two prophets came in, in both directions, and you didn't like either one of them. And your complaint was just the opposite with each one of those. In other words, you can't be pleased. The Jews couldn't be pleased at all. Let's go to John chapter 1. You'd think that finally something would hit upon them. In John chapter 1, when John the Baptist came, John said, I was told, the one that I baptized, and upon whom you see the Spirit descending, that would be the Son of God. And notice his conclusion, I have seen and testified, verse 34, this is the Son of God. Here was John's testimony, this is the Son of God. They rejected that. That's not good enough. So they, they need more evidence. All right, let's see what they can be given. Jesus worked miracles, John, Matthew chapter 12, you remember. And then after working miracles, they said, Master, we would see a sign from you. We'd already given them signs. They want a different kind of miracle, something more, something different. Miracles weren't enough. All right. Then when he healed someone, like in John chapter 5, okay, that was a miracle, all right, but you did it on the wrong day. See, they can't be pleased. We want to see evidence. Okay, here's the evidence. Well, you did it on the wrong day, though. That doesn't work. They couldn't be pleased. And I want to suggest that men and women are like that quite often today. It might be that some are grumbling and murmuring no matter what's done. If something is done in this direction, they mumble and grumble. If something is done in the opposite direction, they mumble and grumble no matter what may be done. When you deal with a problem... You dealt with it the wrong way. The next time when you don't deal with it, the complaint is you didn't deal with the problem. They can't be pleased like the Jews. If someone calls, they're being nosy. If they don't call, no one seems to care. No one ever calls and checks on me. All right, when you do, why, why, weren't you not at, why were you not at services last week? They seem to be nosy. Can't be pleased. And on and on we go. If no one urges their child to obey the gospel, no one seems to care about my family. But when someone talks to your child about obeying the gospel, I'm afraid they're going to run my children off. You see, they can't be pleased. Now, why is it that people can't be pleased? Let me list two reasons, and then we move on. One is prejudice. Let's go back to the case in Luke chapter 7. Why did they reject John? And why did they reject Jesus? They had already decided, they had prejudged that Jesus was not the Messiah and they were not going to accept him. And secondly, because they're constantly looking for fault for a reason to reject him. Those two are intertwined one with the other. Let's go to verse 35 now, the end of the chapter, end of our section at least. And that is the vindication of God's wisdom. The text says, but children, but wisdom is justified by all her children. Now, if you lift that out of its context, you may wonder, what on earth does that mean? But wisdom is justified by all her children. But let's put that back in its context. What he's saying is, the way God worked through John and through Jesus didn't fit the thinking of the Jews. And yet it worked. 
In other words, John was not what they were expecting. What did you go out to see? Do you think you were looking for a reed shaking in the wind? Well, that's not what you found. Were you looking for someone dressed like a king? Well, that's not what you found. You didn't find what you were expecting. John was not at all what you were expecting. In other words, if I was going to choose the forerunner of Christ, I would have probably chose somebody different than a man dressed in camel's hair and out in the wilderness that people would reject and think they, wouldn't, they didn't like what he was saying. They didn't like John. But did it work? Look at verse 29. When all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John. It worked. Go to Matthew 11. That's the parallel account. I said we'd look at it as it enhances our understanding, and this time it will. Look at Matthew chapter 11 and in verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now... The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. What does that suggest? Not talking about persecution that the kingdom of God is suffering violence, but it's talking about as if they're trying to get in. If you can imagine uh, everyone trying to get through the same door. Everybody's trying to get out. We have one exit to get out, and, and we're all cramming through. And you, it's suffering violence. You're pressing to get in that same door. So from the time of John, he's saying the kingdom of God has suffered violence. I mean, people were pressing to get into that. Not everyone, but some did. Now that's parallel to this account found in verse 29 over in Luke chapter 7. It worked. That's the point. It worked. It produced fruit. Now verse 35, let's put it in its context. But wisdom is justified by all her children. What's his point? Wisdom of God is vindicated because it worked. It produced fruit. So John was not what you expected. John was not what you would have chosen. John would not be your first choice for the forerunner of Christ. But it worked. It worked. And so that vindicates God's wisdom. That was the right course. That was the wise thing. Because it worked. Now go back again to verse 35. But wisdom is justified by all her results. Or her children. By what it did. When the kingdom of God suffers violence because of that, then we know the wisdom of God was found in that. God's thinking is just different than ours. God's ways are higher than our ways. It's not in man that walketh to direct his own footsteps, Jeremiah 10. There's a way that seems right, Proverbs 16, verse 25. In other words, what we're trying to establish, man's thinking and God's thinking is different. Now, here's some ways in where we may not see God's wisdom. For example, church discipline is an area where we don't see the wisdom of God. That if we were to redesign that, we'd say, you know what, I think there's a better way to do it. I know what 1 Corinthians 5, and I know what 2 Thessalonians 3, I know what that says, but here's a better way that's going to make it work better. 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2 tells us, it worked. Wisdom is justified in all of her children. Or that adulterers must separate. We may not see the wisdom of that. Here they're living in adultery. Wouldn't it seem better they stay together and be happy than separate? And especially when there's children involved. And yet the wisdom of God is justified in her children. Or maybe spanking children. That doesn't seem to work for some. They just think thinks that not, that's not going to work. And we're told that blights the child's uh, uh, interest in, spirit, in spiritual things. It just doesn't work. 
Or maybe here's something we think God's wisdom is not found in how the gospel, simple gospel, can change the hardened heart. Here is someone that's hardened in sin, and, and we've got to do something to reach them, but the simple gospel is not going to do that. We've got to have something more than just the simple gospel. That won't do that. And yet wisdom is justified with all of her children. Luke chapter 7, 18 to 35, Jesus talks about John. There was the common... Uh, the confirmation sent to John, then the commendation about John, found in their context. What have we learned? Well, God supplies evidence for our conclusions. Sometimes he doesn't give us a direct answer, yes or no, but he gives us the evidence for our conclusion. I see that men can and do often stumble over the truth. I see the greatness of the least of those in the kingdom. The failure to obey God is a rejection of God. How some men can't be pleased, and I see the vindication of God's wisdom. God's wisdom is vindicated when there are the results. Would you respond to the gospel this morning and vindicate the wisdom of God? That the gospel works in your heart? There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ? The Son of the living God, would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and sing?